What is up, y'all? Welcome back to another episode of the Stuttering Christian Podcast. I am your host, Samantha, and on this episode, I have my sweet friend, Julia, and we talk about everything from ministry to stuttering, and I know I know the sound on this episode isn't the best, but I'm still working at it. So I hope you enjoy. So on the podcast, we have my sweet friend, my bestie, youth ministry bestie, Julie. Yeah. So how about you tell us a little bit about yeah, hi. Um, my name is Julia. I am a pastor at Avila United Methodist Church on the south side of Dallas. I am finishing up grad school this year, hoping to graduate next May with my master's in divinity um, from SMU. I live in Dallas. I've been doing ministry since I graduated high school. So for about eight years now, I've been in youth ministry. I've been working at a church since I was 12 years old which is kind of insane. So we're going on 12, 13 years, something like that, um, serving churches. I grew up Baptist and joined the Methodist church in 2018. And so I've been a Methodist for the last handful of years, which is exciting. I like it a lot better over here. Um, trying to think if those are all, I'm a big Taylor Swift fan, a big youth ministry fan, big Jesus fan. And that really sums me up. I have a dog. She's really cool. And that's all the important things in my life. Nice, nice. So this is like a big, hot topic question. The question that is a question that is similar in both of our, our lives is, first, when did you start to have, like, the call into ministry? So for me, it's a bit of a complicated answer because I want to say my whole life has been working towards this moment, right? I was one of those kids who absolutely adored being at Sunday school. I adored being in the church. I was um, in the kids' choir for a couple of years. I was involved in Awanas on and off. I was like, if my family was not or my immediate family was not that super involved. My nuclear family wasn't super involved. My grandparents both worked at the church. Um, when they retired, I think my grandmother put in something like 37 years as our pastoral secretary. And then my grandfather was the administrative pastor for about 33 years at our church. And so like they were church workers. And so, but my, my parents weren't super involved and then the rest of my siblings were super involved. And so if my parents weren't going to go to church, I would call it my granny when I was four or five years old and be like, granny, you need to come pick me up. And she would always come and pick me up. And so from a very young age, I felt a really strong connection to the church that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense in hindsight. Um, but when I was in seventh grade, I had one of those moments. Um, I joined the youth group. We were at a summer camp and it was the summer right before I started seventh grade. And they, we had an amazing week. I still remember the camp. I remember being there and had this wonderful, amazing junior high youth minister, and he was fantastic. And the last night, you know, cry night, they get all the kids to make these decisions about Jesus Christ as your savior. Do you want to be baptized? Do you want to rededicate your life? And then for the first time, they said, and do you, you feel called to ministry? And I sat with it for a while, and I sat with it for a while, and I was like, yeah, I really think that's me. And so I raised my hand, and I was like, I mean, like, I love the church. I dream of working at the church. Like, this is something that I love. And so I uh, raised my hand, and I went forward, and I went down, um, like, you know, to the altar. And then they took all of us kids who were thinking about going into ministry into a separate room, and they had these conversations with us with all these volunteers. And someone pulled me aside and was like, I don't know if this is the right <laughs> um, room for you. If you're, if you're accepting Jesus Christ, go next door. And I was like, no, no, no. I got baptized when I was eight. Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. I know that. And they're like, oh, well, but like, I don't know. And basically they, they told me that I was wrong. Right. 
but I couldn't be called to ministry because I was too young and because most importantly, I was a woman. And so I um, believed them because they were these people who were like older and smarter and wiser than me. And I was like, okay, they know Jesus more than I do. Um, I must be just like emotional or caught up in the moment. And so I went back to my seat and I tried to figure out what to do for the rest of my life. Um, that fall, I think it was that fall, it might've been the fall before I started filling vending machines at my local church because I was a part of a mega church. And so we had like four or five vending machines throughout our various buildings. And because my grandparents worked at the church when they were like, Hey, we need someone to fill the vending machines. They're like, we know a 12 year old who will do it. And so we'd drive me up on Saturdays and I'd spend all the morning, um, filling the vending machines and I could get like drink the sodas and eat the snacks. And I thought I was such a big win. I made $200 a month. And I was like, this is big money for a 12 year old. And I did that for like four years. Like every Saturday I was there at the church refilling the vending machines. And so um, I think it was just really funny that that's my first job. But so after that, I thought I wanted to be a teacher. And I thought that that's where my life was going to go, just teaching in public schools and helping kids in need that way. And so I um, like chose that path. So that's the box that I checked whenever I was doing things for high school and career planning, those kinds of things. Um, and I even enrolled in a, in a class that my school offered that allowed me to intern in a classroom my junior year. And so junior year, I got to go to the junior high and uh, teach eighth grade math, which was really fun, like three times a week. And so I got like really cool opportunities, but I just couldn't get the church out of my mind. And like, I was super involved when I got to youth group and super committed there on Sundays, especially once I could drive, like Sunday mornings, Wednesday nights, everything in between, every event, like I was there. Um, and so then right before, I want to say it was right before my junior year, my church went back to that same summer camp that we had not been back to since that night that I had accepted my call to ministry and then been told no. And we had, again, an amazing week, fantastic time. We had a completely different youth minister at this point. And again, we got to cry night and they said, they're like, if you accept Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, if you want to rededicate your life, if you want to be baptized, and if you want to be called, like, and if you think you're being called to ministry, we're just going to go down the front. And this time I just knew, I was like, there's the way that other people, like some of my friends talked about wanting to be dentists or wanting to be um, like surgeons or wanting to be like financial advisors in high school. They were like so excited for this future. And they would like, you know, dream of cleaning people's teeth. I was like, that is so not me. <laughs> I've never once thought that that would be a good time. But I do dream about church. And I dream about opening a church. I dream about like naming a church. And I dream about designing ministries. And like, I realized I was like, that's not what everyone else thinks about. That's not what everyone, like that's not what's on their hearts, but it's on mine. And so I went down. And again, they tried to do the whole thing. We're like, oh, maybe you're just being emotional. And I was like, you can tell me what you want to tell me. You can send me back to my seat. But this is for me. I'm called to ministry. And so um, that was right. I think it was right before my junior year. That I was called to ministry. Um, and I, that next year was when I got to intern in that junior high classroom. And interning there just really solidified that. Because as much as I loved working with those eighth graders, I was like, this is not what I want to do forever. It's a great thing but it's not what I'm called to, I'm called to ministry. And so um, my youth pastor did not know what to do with me. I was part of a Southern Baptist church that does not affirm women. And he was like, okay, <laughs> um, sure. And I didn't know this at the time, but looking back on it, he was like 19 when he was hired as the youth pastor. And so he and I were like the same age. He had just graduated high school. He didn't go to college and he moved from Oklahoma down here. So like I'm sure he was looking at me as this like 17 year old that he inherited, um, who's like so sure that she's going to go into ministry. And I like knew everything that he wanted to teach me. You know, like I, I've been raised in the church. Like I knew the scriptures, I knew the stories. Like I was teaching Sunday school classes. Um, I started working as like the children's ministry intern. And so I think he just kind of viewed us as friends <laughs> and was like, I don't, I'm not sure how much I really have to. And I thought he was great. His name was Tyler. He was wonderful. Um, but yeah, he just didn't really know what to do with me. And so I knew that I wanted a, a theological education. So I chose Baylor for uh, my undergrad and I studied religion there. Sick'em. Sick'em bears. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I just, it was really that, that summer before seventh grade and that summer again, right before my junior year that I knew I felt called to ministry. Yes. So the like next question is, 
since you are a, fe- a female in mm-hmm. mint mystery. Yep, I am both of those things. <laughs> and those Southern Baptists think we don't got no right to no, preach. None. I want you to explain the argument. Like, why are they saying this? Mm -hmm. And what, like, just explain on the why and just go all, like, Bible nerd. Yeah. (laughs) So the basic understanding from, and the hardest one, I think, to refute from the Southern Baptist Church or for any sort of uh, more conservative denomination or Christian who thinks that women don't have a place in ministry, especially in like lead pastoral roles, comes from um, two passages in Ephesians in chapter five, where Paul talks about the household codes, how people are supposed to behave. Children submit to your parents, slaves submit to your owners, your masters, and wives submit to your husbands. Um, that's taken as kind of a design a way forward the a prescription for how families should run and then when we look at the church the argument is that well if a woman cannot run her own family if she's supposed to submit to her husband how can she spiritually lead a church right when she's supposed to be submitting she's not supposed to be leading it's the men who are spiritual leaders, right um, another place that that comes up is in i think it's in first peter no first timothy um, where Paul says, I do not permit a woman to speak in church. And so, um, well, a woman speak in church. Um, and basically it's taken as an argument that, oh, it's in first Corinthians 14, um, that, if women can't speak in church, they certainly can't lead in the church. So uh, they shouldn't be leading. And then some looser arguments that I think are a little easier to poke at uh, is in creation, when God creates man and woman, he creates man first in the second story um, of creation in chapter two, creates man and woman. And at first he creates man and he says that it's not right for man to be alone. And so he creates another person. He creates Eve, a woman, and calls Eve, the woman, this helper for man. And uh, I think that's a really weak argument because that's the same exact word used to describe the Holy Spirit. And so if you are Trinitarian, you believe that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are co-equal and co-eternal, then helper cannot mean anything derogatory. And so if you're a Trinitarian, which I'm assuming most Christians are because it's very basic tenets of our Christian faith, um, then that argument is just wiped right out. Um, the other two are a little harder to refute, but I think what it really comes down to is that when we look at, for me, when we look at the whole of scripture, not these two tiny little verses that are written in letters that are very contextual, that were not meant um, for different contexts. They were meant for specific churches in specific situations. Um, they were written by one man. They were not compiled. They were not, like, they were written by one man. Um, we look at the whole of scripture as opposed to just these two verses that I listed, we see women doing all kinds of things, especially being used by God. And so if we look at starting with creation in the very first chapter in Genesis, it says that God created male and female. He created them in God's image, male and female. He created them. In our image, he created them male and female, right? And so what we get here is that both men and women reflect the image of God. There is not one in the first story or in the second story that reflects the image of God more. There's not one gender that reflects it less, right? Like we both reflect the image of God. Um, it's only after sin comes into the world that we get any sort of subordination. And even then, I find it really hard to see it as subordination that should be prescribed, right? If it's a project of sin, we should not be celebrating it, right? What we see in Genesis chapter two is that, um, I can flip to it, my good old handy dandy Bible that I stole from a church. Um, I really did. I stole it from the Taylor Wesley. Um, in chapter three, 
we get uh, the story of, you know, Adam and Eve eating the fruit, whatever. If you want to take a story literally, you can, you don't have to. And then after we find out, you know, the woman said, the snake, or the Lord said to the woman, what have you done? You've eaten this thing. Um, and the woman said, the snake tricked me and I ate. And the Lord God said to the snake, because you did this, da 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 da. Um, because you did this, you're the cursed one out of all the farm animals, out of all the wild animals on your belly, you will crawl and on the dust you will eat every day of your life. I will put contempt between you and the woman, between her offspring and yours. They will strike your head, but you will strike at their heels. And to the woman, he said, I will make your pregnancy very painful and in pain you will bear children. You will desire your husband, but he will rule over you. Right? And so that's taken as this verse to, well, now because of sin, we have to, women have to be ruled over by their husbands. Um, I think it's a really interesting way of looking at it, and I also think it's not the best way to look at it um, because it's a product of sin, right? And the good news of Jesus Christ is that we have been freed from sin. And so if we've been freed from sin, does that not also mean that we've been freed from the consequences of sin, including death, right? That's the whole Christian hope. The whole entire Christian hope is that we have been freed from sin and all of its consequences, including death, that we do not have to suffer anymore, that we have hope instead that death has been defeated i think it's interesting that the god of these more conservative christians um can defeat death but can't defeat subordination (laughs) right that this god of christians who don't think that women are equal to men um can literally defeat and destroy and end death but is not powerful enough to destroy the patriarchy, um, that seems a little weird to me, especially because we, we get it as a direct result of sin. And so if it's a direct result of sin, it's not how God intended for it to be because God did not intend for sin to happen. Um, it's not how God desires for it to be because God does not desire that any might suffer or sin. Um, that's from the Bible. But also like, so if, if it's not God's plan, if it's not God's desire, as Christians, we shouldn't be perpetuating. And so we see that again, we see it pop up all the time. We see it pop up when um, people like, oh, I think it's Rachel tricks her dad Lot, right? Um, or Laban, Rachel tricks Laban, um, running away from her father with Jacob, her new her husband, and she's celebrated for it, right? I think it's sneaky and snarky, but she's celebrated for it. We see it in um, stories like Rahab, and we see it in stories like Hagar. We see it in stories um, where all of these women are included in the line of Jesus. We see it in stories where women and their empowerment is blessed and encouraged, where it is favored by God, especially in the Old Testament. We see this in um, Deborah, right? A judge who not only taught the people spiritually as a judge, not only spoke for them um, as the voice of God, as a prophet, but also led their nation as a governing figure and led their armies as a military figure. So she was at the highest point of leadership and was celebrated for it. Um, And so like, if God wasn't okay with that, why would God have appointed her? There were plenty of men in Israel at the time and yet God still chose Deborah and God chose Deborah. Um, So that from the very beginning, it says that God does not care about the gender binary that we humans sometimes create. Um, that God does not see gender when calling people to ministry. But also, maybe, uh, I don't like saying that God doesn't see gender. But like, gender's not getting in the way of God calling someone to ministry. I think God recognizes that I'm a woman and that that is part of my ministry. Anyway, um, we also see it, especially in the New Testament, right? We see it even in Paul's own acquaintances, right? Like the people that Paul works with, like Lydia, um, like Tamar. Like these are women who are leading churches that um, Paul is blessing, that Paul is supporting in their letters. He thanks them for the work that they're doing. He encourages them. Um, A couple of his letters he knows are going to be read by women because they were the only ones in their communities that could read, and they were the leaders of the house churches. And so he even acknowledges them in his letters, like outside of 1 Corinthians, and celebrates them reading and says, thank you for their work to keep on doing the work that you've been doing. we get people like Priscilla, who is teaching with her husband. They are doing like ministry together, and he does not look down on her because of that. In fact, she's listed first, which is often seen as a sign of respect. And um, 
there are even some people who think that she wrote the book of Hebrews, which is my favorite understanding, um, my favorite little headcanon. Um, there's no proof of that. Of course, a lot of people think Hebrews was written by Paul. That doesn't make sense to me because they're wildly different from his letters, but whatever. Um, and so like we have this other woman who Priscilla, who is there teaching, supporting, preaching the word of God. And Paul says nothing to condemn her at all and celebrates her ministry. Right. So even Paul believed that women had a right to speak and teach, just not in that one Corinthians letter. And then finally, the most compelling argument that I can make, um, or at least the most compelling argument to me is in the life of Jesus, right? Jesus' ministry was paid for and supported by women who followed him around, right? It was women who fed him. It was women who literally like paid for the food that they were eating and paid for the tents. And like, um, he's funded by one of the Marys, right? Um, he always has women following him and near him. He has women with him at the cross when all of the other disciples turn away, except for the beloved disciple. It's like his mom and the Marys, like they're there. Um, and so Jesus is with women. And if he didn't think that they had a right to be teaching or training or learning, um, he would have kicked them out of his group, but he didn't. Also the first person that Jesus ever says he's the Messiah to the first person that Jesus says, yes, I am the Messiah, is the Samaritan woman at the well. And not only does he tell her, yes, I am the Messiah, he then tells her, so go and tell your town of what you've learned. So not only is he telling her, yes, you know this thing that my own disciples don't even know. You were the first person on earth to recognize the authority that I have, um, that I'm going to confirm it in you, right? Like the first true evangelist is the Samaritan woman because she takes the good news of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, to her town. And she's celebrated for it, commanded to do so, right? And that's all preaching is, just telling the good news of Christ. Um, and so, like, Jesus is commanding these women to preach. And then again, the first women or the first people at the tomb to find the empty grave are women. And what does Jesus tell them to do? He tells them to go and tell others, to go and share what they've seen, to go tell Peter, to inform the men, to go preach, to go witness, to go evangelize. That's what they've been told by Jesus. And so if Jesus can tell people, can tell women to go into ministry, who are you to say that Jesus is wrong? Um, clearly, Jesus did not let gender get in the way of ministry. Um, and so I just, yeah, I think that they're the whole of scripture points to women being in ministry. Um, also, historically speaking, they're like women are the most involved in church. Women are the most faithful to serve the church. Um, women are the most faithful to like continue to be present and to raise their children and their families in the church. Um, practically speaking, women most often are the spiritual leaders of their families. And so if you're going to just say women shouldn't be in ministry, I think it's a really uh, disconnected, um, also theologically shallow take of the Bible. Um, it makes me feel like you didn't actually read your Bible. So, but I, I mean, I understand it and I get that there are people who disagree. My own family doesn't um, really support me in ministry. So like I, I hear and I respect it and I think you can easily be a Christian and disagree on this issue. I just don't think it's the most Christ-like way. Yes and amen. <laughs> That's a long answer, Sam. Preach it. <laughs> yes. Once you get me talking, it's hard to get me to stop. <laughs> my favorite thing that my grandma has said about the whole like women and men mystery thing is who gave them the right to play God mm. because they have no right they are trying to be God when they are not mm -hmm. and I just I admire that from you your willingness and your willingness to not give up like that is huge, especially being in ministry. It is so huge. Just so awesome. Well, and like even the most conservatives, uh, the most conservative of Christians who really just don't think that women have a place in ministry actually do think that women have a place in ministry. Yeah. Because if you look, they they let women teach children's ministry mm -hmm. and they let women go and be missionaries overseas to men and women, to children and adults. And they let women 
sing on Sunday mornings. And they. The next question is, uh, how was it interviewing for your like first youth mystery job? Yeah, so that's, I mean, okay, so again, I've been working in the church since I was 12. I started by filling vending machines, and then I worked um, when I could drive. I started working as like one of the nursery workers who would rock babies and stuff, work at our daycare, Mother's Day Out, that kind of thing when I was in school. And then I got a position as the children's ministry intern. And so I was like cutting circles, sharpening pencils, doing all that kind of stuff. Um, and then I went off to Baylor and my first, I started volunteering in youth ministry. I joined a club that um, outsourced to different youth ministries in the area. And then I guess my first like youth ministry job where I was like paid was the summer after my freshman year, but it was just like an internship, right? And so I was interviewing for an internship and I honestly don't even remember what that process was like. I know that I applied to it. It was with a, a Baptist church um, in the Woodlands, Texas that I, I didn't have any connection to, but they ran a, a pretty solid internship program. And that was like really formative for me. Um, and then I'm trying to think the next summer was when I started working at First Baco. And so that was a, a position that I, again, it, it was so particular. It's hard to, to like give advice. I feel like it's such a weird story, which is how most stories that involve ministry are just because it's so God-centered. It seems like things just happen by accident or they just like fall into place. Um, so what had happened was I found out my sophomore year at Baylor that if I just took a couple summer classes, just added a couple summer classes to my schedule, that not only could I study abroad my, la my junior year, but my junior year would be my last. I would get to graduate in three instead of four. And so I was like, well, heck yeah, <laughs> absolutely. This seems like a big win. It would save me lots of money. Baylor is very expensive. Um, at the time, the only school that was more expensive than Baylor was SMU, which was where I'm doing a master's. So apparently I have very expensive tastes. <laughs> and I was like, I could save myself a whole like $60,000 by not going to school for four years. And so I decided I was going to take some summer courses. And I originally was going to go back home and take those summer courses in Houston, my hometown. But turns out I had taken so many like summer courses and I'd come in with so many high school credits that if I took another class outside of Baylor University, not through Baylor, um, I would not get a Baylor degree. <laughs> and so they're like, you have to take these classes with Baylor. And I was like, okay, absolutely. Aye, aye, Captain, will do. And so I registered for summer classes at Baylor. And this all happened within a, like a, a two-week window right before summer started, the last two weeks of class. And as I'm sitting there, I remember on a Tuesday night, I was working as a, like an RA at Baylor. And we had staff meeting on Tuesday nights. And every week at staff meeting, they asked for prayer requests. And I said, I found out this morning that I'm going to have to stay in town for the summer. And I, like, I need a job to make money and I need housing, and I don't know what I'm going to do, and so I'm really freaked out, um, but I, like, I think God's going to help me if you guys could just pray for me that way, right? Wednesday, I go to class, and I had this friend in class who was absolutely amazing. We had, every semester, we had had a class together. Um, we actually shared a wall my first year. She slept on the other side of the wall in the dorm next to me, um, but we weren't actually really good, like, we didn't become friends until that semester, and she's still one of my dearest friends, even to this day. I love her to death. And she turned around in class on Wednesday, turned around and looked at me and said, hey, Julia, what are you doing this summer? And I said, that's so funny that you asked. I just found out that I'm staying in Waco and I am taking summer courses and now I'm looking for a job. And she goes, shut up. And I was like, what? And she was like, I work in youth ministry at this Methodist church in town, um, First Methodist Waco, and I'm going back home for the summer to be with my then fiance and they need someone to cover my job for the summer and I was like oh yeah that would be and she was like they're looking for someone would you be interested and I was like yes I would be interested absolutely please pay me to do ministry please and so she was like okay okay let me give you their number I'm going to call our youth pastor and we will like set it up and work it out and they'll like probably want to interview and stuff and I was like that's fine that's fine um that night this Wednesday night remember Tuesday I found out that I needed to take summer classes here in Waco. And I was like, how to scramble that Wednesday night, 
they called me and they said, hey, like, we'd love to interview you. You've come really highly recommended from, you know, your friend. Um, we really trust her. She's one of the best ministry people we've ever had. Even to this day, she's one of the best um, ministers I've ever known to date. She's like one of the holiest people I ever know. And they're like, we'd love to interview you. When are you free? And I was like, oh, my, my schedule's pretty flexible. They were like, are you free tomorrow? And I was like, yeah, I'm free tomorrow. Um, we can go in the morning before class. And they're like, perfect. And so I showed up that next morning, Thursday morning for class. And I, or I showed up to the interview before class and we met at Common Grounds Coffee in Waco. And we sat down and there were the, one of the associate pastors and then the college minister at the time um, were interviewing me because they had just, um, lost their youth pastor. They're like lead youth pastor. She got married and moved away. And so, um, she was leaving. And so they just didn't want, like, she didn't have the time, um, to interview me. So it was the, the college director and the like associate pastor were interviewing me. And we sat down at common grounds and I cannot remember a single thing that they asked me. Um, I can remember being there. I can picture what Haley and Brandon looked like. I even know what Haley wore that day. Um, and I remember talking to them and I remember, I'm sure they asked me about like Methodism and I'm sure that they asked me about like my call. They asked me, you know, I'm sure they did. Cannot remember a moment of it. What I do remember is that by lunchtime, like the interview ended, I went to class by lunch. I got out of class. They called me and offered me a position. So within 48 hours, my prayers have been answered. Right. And so then that night I found a girl on Facebook who was subletting an apartment and I found an apartment that I stayed in the summer. And I mean, things just fell right into place. And I cannot express to you how formative that was for me. And it just happened by accident, right? They needed someone just for the summer. I needed a job just for the summer. We both thought that, um, everybody involved, Anne Marie, the friend who got me hired, um, the people who interviewed me, Brandon and Haley, me. I was going to study abroad that fall in Scotland. And so we all knew that I was just going to work from May to August. And then I was going to go home for a month and I was going to fly out to Scotland and I was going to stay there. And then good riddance, I'm Baptist, they're Methodist. It'd be great. Well, what happened was that it was a really, really good summer. And it turns out I'm very good at my job when I do it. Yeah. And um, <laughs> by the end of the summer, they were like, Julia, we don't want you to leave. And I was like, and I loved this church after my few months there, like I felt so at home. I felt so connected. I got involved in their college ministry. I mean, like it was a fantastic summer and I was like, man, I don't want to leave, but I'm going away. And they're like, okay, call us. Like, let's keep in touch. When you get back in town, when you come back from Scotland, call us and we're going to figure something out because you deserve to be in ministry. You deserve to have a job. We, we just got to find a place for you. And I was like, okay, cool. So before I even got back from Scotland, about halfway through, I got an email from the, the associate pastor that had hired me. And he said, hey, we are looking at, um, there's this church in town that's dying. It's got a beautiful building. And we're looking at making that building a second campus of our church. Um, that church is looking at closing. And we need someone to go into this church and help give it a little bit of life, give it a little bit of energy, um, work with us, First Waco, um, and do their youth ministry and just kind of give them a taste of what it might be like to be a campus of First Waco through your ministry and youth. Are you interested at all in doing that? And I was like, yes, absolutely. If you'll give me a job, I promise I'll do it. And if it's working with you guys, like I would, I would be honored. I'd love that. And so that's what I did for my last semester when I made it back to um, Waco. And my last semester at Baylor, I worked there as just the youth pastor. And my goal was to do youth ministry. Um, in connection with First Waco at this other church um, to try and give the church an idea of what it might be like to be a campus of First Waco because they would have to vote on it. And it was their church and no one wanted to like come in and take over, you know? Um, and so it was just to see if it would be a good fit and they needed a youth minister. They didn't have one. And then at the end of that semester, right, I was graduating and I was freaking out about where I was going to go. I had originally had some plans that fell through and so I had no direction. I had no place to go. I graduated and was like, I'm supposed to have a full-time job. I'm supposed to pay these bills. What am I going to do? <laughs> Student loans kick in in six months. What's going to happen? And first they go called and they were like, hey, actually, would you be willing to do, um, like, to do this full-time, to do their children's ministry, to do some communication stuff for them? We'll, we'll, step, we'll piece a couple different jobs together 
to get you into full-time ministry, but we want you to stay uh, until this place becomes a campus. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. And so that was my job was to help it transition into a campus. And so I did that for um, a year in full-time ministry. And I, I helped that, that other church transition into being a campus at First Waco. And then when that, that position ended, when that job ended, is when I interviewed and got this job at Avila that I've had for the last three years. Um, and so, like, it's it's so random. I can't remember what it was like being interviewed. I can't remember. what it, And it wasn't even, what I do remember is that when I walked out, I called my roommate at the time, and I told her, I was like, that didn't even feel like an interview. I remember saying that. I remember saying, this felt like a conversation with two people who are really cool. And so, um, again, it's one of those things where it's hard to look back and not think God was just throwing us at each other. Um, because it just happened so beautifully. Um, and it was such an answer to prayer for so many different people, but yeah. So like, I, I don't know. I haven't really, <laughs> a lot of my jobs I haven't been interviewed for. I've just been given them, which tends to happen in ministry is that you come recommended for some, from somebody, um, somebody who knows you connects you with somebody else. And then like, that's how you get these jobs. It's all about networking, which is, um, a beautiful thing when it happens to you. And it's a little difficult to swallow when it works against you, you know? Yeah. Um, because yeah, especially in ministry, people just want to hire people they know that they can trust. So that's a long way to say I can't answer your question. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. So within this podcast, there's the Christian part mm-hmm. talking about just being a youth minister, stuff like that. But there's also the stuttering part. Mm, yeah. So the question is, have you ever met someone besides me that stutters? Not really. I mean, my, my older sister went to speech pathology when I was a kid. But I think it was because she had a list, not because she stuttered. I'm trying to remember. I think it was because she had a speech impediment. Um, and then like really the only other person in my life who I know that stutters is like Drew Lynch, the comedian who I technically have met. I got to go to one of the shows and like meet him and I got to meet, um, his dog before she passed. And so like, I, but he's not like a a key figure in my life. I mean, I watch all of his videos and I think he's hilarious and I think he's a really great guy, but it's a very parasocial relationship. Right. And so you're the only one, the only person that is like really in my life um that I know that stutters I'm trying to think yeah I think it's just you yeah because the cool part is I am just a freaking unicorn I'm very <laughs> like I will talk about stuttering for hours and then there's other people that don't mm-hmm. like they don't want that atten- attention like, don't put that on me. Mm-hmm. And so there's times that people don't real, realize that they've met someone that stuttered, but stutters are so good at hiding it mm-hmm. that it is what it is, man. And, like, that's the other thing, too, is that it's hard for me. I'm a very, like, people person, as you know. I, I tend to have a lot of friends. I tend to connect with a lot of people, and especially when I was in, um, elementary, junior high, early high school, I was friends with a lot of, sorry if you were one of my friends, then don't read into this too much. Um, I, was, I was friends with a lot of like nerds and like losers and like uncool people um, because I was those kinds of things, right? And so like I'm trying to think if any of them, it was a lot of quiet people, right? And so I'm wondering if any of those people looking back on it now, if I could say, oh, I think they were quiet because they might've stuttered. Um, Right. And so that just led them to be a little, excuse me, a little less talkative or a little more shy, um, which I think, you know, those tend to go hand in hand. Um, And so I'm sure that I've had friends that have and I just like didn't log them in my mind that way. I logged them as like a quiet person and not necessarily. And so I don't know. I don't know if I was really aware of stuttering as um, a thing, as a like point of life, as a disability is a struggle that people had until college. And so I don't know if it's just because I wasn't aware of it, but I didn't notice it as much, or if it's genuinely because there weren't a whole lot of people around me that 
answer. You know what I mean? Yeah, because literally yesterday at the gym, there is there are a group of guys that they are either dads or single dads mm-hmm. or divorced dads that they worry about me and my boss because mm-hmm. we are young. And so one of these guys heard me talk and heard me stutter very, very bad. And he is a paramedic and stuttering is like the first line of every illness, stuff like that. And he pulled me to the side and he said, Sam, I've never realized you stuttered. And I'm like, have you heard me talk on the phone? <laughs> like, brother. And he was like, no, like, it just did not click until that mo- moment. So what I've learned is most times it just doesn't click. Mm-hmm. They're just like, okay, cool. But um, how has knowing me changed your view on stuttering yeah I think clearly like you are such an exceptional human being that it is impossible to know you and to think that stuttering is some kind of roadblock to success or some kind of roadblock to extroversion or that it is antithetical to uh, like public speaking or those kinds of things because you do all of those things so well Um, however I think I think disability in general is one of those things you don't realize how deep the well goes until you're living it or you're living really close to it, right? Because for me, um, I'm very blessed. Um, I mean, I am disabled in the sense that I need glasses. Um, I've struggled with mental health, but for the vast majority of things and for most of my body and mental well-being, like I'm a pretty able-bodied person. Um, I'm very blessed and thankful for that. And I recognize that's a privilege that I have, right? And so for me, it's really easy to not think about the fact that I can just say the words that come to my mind, right? And it's really easy for me to just like not even recognize um, how often I speak and how often I use my words um, to get what I want, to get what I need, to express how I'm feeling, to build relationships, right? Like all of these things that I do I'm a, you can't tell, I love to talk <laughs> a lot. Same. And so like when I think about all the ways that I use my language to get me what I want, what I need in life, um, it was one of those things that I didn't, I didn't realize the gravity of it until I met you, right? Until I was living life with someone who that doesn't come as easy. They have to work harder at it than I do. And it doesn't mean you're not as successful as I am because you are, but right, it, it comes harder for you. It's something that you, you struggle with. It's something that you wrestle with. Um, and so I think the thing for me is that I just didn't realize how much of an impact stuttering can have. And again, it's just one of those where I didn't realize how um, privileged I am and how much of our world is catered to people like me and not catered to everyone that doesn't, our world just doesn't function for everyone the same way that it functions for me. Um, For example, as I was driving down here, I sent the 30 minute drive from my apartment into work. And I I think he sent like six or seven text messages to people, which is, I mean, absolutely insane. The amount of texts that I send in a day is disgusting. And I was sending these six or seven texts and I had Siri write them out for me. And I was getting so frustrated with Siri because I was trying to say this word Perot. I was talking about the Perot Museum in um, Dallas, Texas. And so it's P-E-R-O-T, Perot Museum. And she could not figure that out at all. She kept saying parole, like as in jail and parole, um, or like crime and parole. And I was like, no, I do not want to go to a museum about people in parole. She was like, pierogi. I was like, nope, I, that's not the museum I want to go to. But like all these things. And I was getting so mad at her. And like, even that, like, if it doesn't work for me, I can't even imagine how hard it would be for you, right? That like Siri is not someone who's going to listen to you with a lot of patience. And sometimes she cuts me off and I get so frustrated, but I also like live my life around it. It's one of my favorite things to be able to tell Siri. It's why I have, um, it's why I use Apple music. It's 
why I have an iPhone is because I love being able to use Siri when I'm driving. And so like just simple things like that, that I don't recognize the privilege in until you're confronted with someone who doesn't have that privilege, right? To someone who doesn't have that same amount of ability. And so um, it's made me more aware of the way that I speak. It's made me more aware of the privilege that I have because I speak pretty easily and fluidly. Um, but also it's made me a more patient person, right? The thing about stuttering is that I think is really cool. Um, I'm someone who tends to rush through things. So I graduated Baylor in three years. I graduated high school early. I'm graduating my master's a year early, right? Like I rush through things and I hurry through things and I like to get things done as quickly as possible. But when I'm having a conversation with you, because I care about you and I love you and I find the things that you say are interesting, I feel myself slowing down, right? And it's not because you're dragging me down, but it's because I enjoy being with you, right? And it just takes you a little bit longer to speak yeah. than the rest of us. And so, um, like, you force me <laughs> to work against myself, right? Which I think is such a good thing. I, it's so funny. I was listening to your podcast, the one that you posted about camp and being at camp. And I am usually someone... It's a little embarrassing. I'm usually someone who listens to audiobooks and podcasts at like two and a half times. I, again, I like to rush through things. I don't like to slow down. I'm a very go-getter kind of girl. And so I, um, yeah, I usually listen at two and a half speed and I felt sick trying to listen to you at two and a half speed because I was like, why do I, I was like, I feel like I'm rushing her. I would never do this in real life. I was like, slow it down, Julia. This is not how Sam speaks. And so I had to listen to you at normal speed Yeah, because I felt like I was, felt like I was a jerk for rushing you, right? Rushing you on the phone. She wasn't even in the car with me. She had no idea I was doing this, but I was like, no, Sam deserves my full attention. And I am not gonna rush her because that is not how, like that's not what she deserves, right? And so I need to slow down and I need to be with her in this. Um, and so it's, yeah, again, just reminding, like, I think it's a really beautiful thing. And also recognizing that like disability in general is such a, such a contextual thing, right? Um, like for you, it's so easy to say that like stuttering has like does not hold you back. Like you do not, um, like you push through it, you persevere through it, that you are a public speaker, that you um, teach regularly, that you have a podcast, which is primarily a speaking thing, right? Like, <laughs> but not everybody who stutters feels comfortable with that, right? Like not everybody who stutters stutters in the same way. Not everybody who stutters struggles in the same way. And so for some people, um, they would not feel comfortable like running a podcast um, because of their stutter. And that's totally okay and valid and like, cool, that's fine, right? That's not a big deal at all. Um, and so it's one of those things where like getting to know you is also like reminding myself like that disability looks different in everyone. And like, just because Sam can do this really awesome thing doesn't mean that every, I should expect that same thing from every single person who stutters, right? Like not every single person who stutters is gonna be Sam, but they all are people who are like worth listening to and worth slowing down for and worth walking with. Um, and so like that, I think that's one of the things that you taught me too. It's a long answer, man. I just don't shut up. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I am the exact same way. I just keep on go going. That's, that's why I have a podcast. <laughs> So I can record myself speaking, and most times I don't edit it. Really? I just post the full thing. And you don't have to edit this one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it is just so cool. I find it absolutely hilarious that you listen to audiobooks <laughs> at like, like 2.5 speed. Mm -hmm. Because that was me with the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard case. Oh, yeah. It was like eight hours long. I would put it at like 3.5 speed. <laughs> and somehow my brain was able to follow, follow it. That is so funny. Yeah. I, I listened to my lectures in class. Um, this summer I took three online courses. And so um, I would listen to all of those lectures at double or even triple oh, yeah. speed. There was one very sweet professor who was in 80s, slow, yep. he's southern, <laughs> and has a nice cadence, and he, I would listen to it at three speed. Most people listen to him at like one and a half, 1.75, right, because I'm, I'm trying to take notes, I'm trying to yeah. take 
Um, and then when I got to class and he was speaking at his normal speed, I wanted to bang my head against the wall. I was like, <laughs> oh my gosh, how am I going to listen to this man speak this slow all day long? I was in, I was like, man, I, if there was a way to turn you up to three times speed in real life, I'd do it. Come on, man, you can do this. We, we got things to do. Um, yeah, it's, it's really bad. I need to slow myself down. Oh, man. I, um, man, one of like the stuttering techniques is like talking slow. Like that's one of like the coping mechanisms. Mm. And it's basically how Marilyn Monroe spoke because she stuttered. I had no idea. Yeah. Do you think that'll come up in her new biopic they're doing? If they don't, I'm going to throw hands. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah, just like the way that she talks so eloquently and very Mm -hmm. like sexy, that is a stuttering coping mechanism. Wow. Who knew? Yeah. Me. (laughs) (laughs) Clearly. Wow, that's awesome though. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's really cool. I really hope that movie includes that. Yes. Because I think that'd be really important for people to see, especially after we just got... um, I mean, I guess we still do have a president who stutters, right? And a yes. lot of people who don't really like our president um, use that as like a blocking point. Yeah. Like, okay, maybe we shouldn't. Like, there are just some things that it's not helpful to mock. Um, yeah. And it's not kind or compassionate. Or, well, it's not kind or compassionate to mock anyone at any point. Mm-hmm. But there are also better ways to show that you're angry with your political system yeah. than to mock someone's disability. Uh, I... <laughs> I know someone that has done that in front of my face, like for our current president. And I respond in probably the most petty way saying, what if that was me? Mm. Would you be making fun of me? Would you be making fun of the way I spoke? I don't think that's petty at all. I think that's righteous. (laughs) Like genuinely, because it's so true Mm -hmm. that like, it's so easy to other people when you don't like them already, it's yeah. so easy to other them when you're on, you're only seeing them through a screen, which is the only way that I've ever interacted with our president. I've never met our president in person. Joe, you want to hang out? Let me know. Yes, um, I'm assuming you listen to this podcast every <laughs> single week. Um, you know, but I, and so it's so easy to other them and then to mock. Um, and it's so easy to use these things that stick out to us, yeah. like disability, like stuttering as an easy point of mocking. Um, but the truth is, is that not only is that incredibly hurtful towards the person with a disability, that's also incredibly hurtful for anyone around you who's listening who has a disability or knows and loves somebody with that disability. And also it's not helpful, mm-hmm. right? It doesn't do anything. It doesn't foster community. It does not um, improve your situation. It does not get rid of the things that you don't like. Right. And like the same is true about our last president when people would body shame him. Right. And yeah. mock his body. I was not a big fan of our last president. I'm going to go ahead and say that. Um, but that doesn't mean that we have a right um, or it doesn't mean that we're not good people. Right. For making fun of the way that he looks, making fun of his yeah. hair or his body type. Like and also that doesn't help anything. It just makes you a lousy person. Right. Mm-hmm. It just makes you a jerk. The Samism. <laughs> yes. Fun fact about me, because I love fun facts, is when I come to a a situation where I am answering the phone at the gym or answering the phone or talking to someone that does not know me, does not know that I stutter, I test them their ability on if they are going to fall in the bear trap Mm. I like most stutterers can stutter on purpose okay and within that it gives them a amount of fluency Mm -hmm. because they are doing it on purpose and so it's a joke at the gym that whoever comes in and they are new um I go up and I talk to them. My mm-hmm. boss is just like staring at me to see if they will make fun of, of mm-hmm. me because she said, we won't allow people to make fun of you here. And I'm like, I love that. 
thank you. But I like to say my superpower is stuttering on purpose. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, but like genuinely to be able to to just get it out there in the open, right? And to just like get it over with. I can imagine that be kind of freeing and Mm -hmm. also like take ownership of something that other people criticize. Um, You're not the, like, you're not the only kind of person who does that, right? Like you see this in all different kinds of movies too. So Mm -hmm. that makes total sense. It's so valid. And also I think it's so funny. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I even told the owner of the gym that Mm -hmm. if I get a vibe that the person is just mean, I stutter on purpose. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I'm, I'm like, yes, yes. So as we wrap up, what is the advice that you would give to a young female or a young person that wants to go into ministry, but their community is telling them no? Um, I think. In all things, we seek first God mm-hmm. and his righteousness, and then everything else will follow. And so if you are feeling called to ministry, and um, if you're not feeling supported in your community because you're a woman or because you identify sexually mm-hmm. in a, with an identity that people don't see as valid, um, or because of your race or your experience or whatever it is, um, seek first God and all these other and so chase after the Lord, and it's not going to make it easy. It's not going to make it simple. Um, but if you chase after the Lord, the Lord will lead you where you're meant to go. The Lord will lead you into greener pastures. Um, also, I think it's a fine line, a very fine line between staying where you are and working within a broken system to fix it, and then realizing you need to move into a system that is already functioning better. Right. For example, um, in my life, right, I could have stayed in the Southern Baptist Church and tried to work for the rights of women in that denomination. Right? I think it's the like Beth Lynn who did that for many years, worked within a denomination that she knew was broken, hoping that she could be part of the change. And yet there came a point where I had to realize for me and my walk, um, it was not going to be sustainable. For me to continue doing ministry in a place that does not support me um, and that my voice was never going to be loud enough to change the system. And so my ability to impact change uh, was decreasing and my burnout <laughs> was increasing, right? And I had to make a decision. And I was very lucky that I was already inside. Of, at that point, I was already working at a Methodist church and I had a conversation with that same friend who got me hired, who turned around in that class that day. Um, and she told me, Julia, there are some Baptists. Because for a while, I thought I was going to be Baptist, just not Southern Baptist. And because there are there are plenty of Baptist denominations who are supportive of women in ministry. But I remember talking to this friend, and she said, you might find some Baptists who are happy that you're in ministry. They might tolerate you in ministry. But the Methodist church will celebrate you in ministry. Yes, and, and that amen. was the thing that really, like, shifted it for me and this is not to say everybody should join the Methodist church I'll leave it. Um, we have our own problems and struggles and I totally respect that but what I'm trying to say here is that you need to the desire to want to be something somebody really important the desire to want to be someone groundbreaking the desire to want to be someone who changes the system is a very powerful desire and it feels like you're doing the right thing but there comes a point where your strivings to change the system are getting in the way of your ministry. And you might just need to go somewhere where people already love and support you. Because there are denominations that support women in ministry. There are denominations that support um, LGBTQ clergy in ministries. There are denominations that support like people of color in ministries. There are organizations that support disability, like disabled people in ministries, right? People with disabilities in ministries. Um, and so whatever it is, whatever barrier it is, just walk that line carefully, right? Being a, a trailblazer versus actually getting to do the ministry that you're called to. And that's, I can't give you an answer for when to make that switch. If you need to make that switch, that's something between you and God. 
Um, but I think if you strive after God and you chase after God, God will lead you where God wants you. And maybe that is to be a trailblazer. Maybe that is to be a groundbreaker. But it also, like, your ministry isn't inherently better because you're struggling for it, um, which was a hard lesson to learn. Because it feels so righteous when you're fighting the man, when you're, like, you know, tearing <laughs> down the power, when you're raging against the machine. Um, but sometimes that actually gets in the way. And it's just better to go somewhere that supports you. Um, and it's not a one-time thing. Like you can flop back and forth, right? Like if I wanted to go be Southern Baptist tomorrow, I could, I wouldn't, but I could, <laughs> right? And I could go back to trailblazing and trying and striving that effort if that's what I thought God was calling me to. And so my biggest advice is just to really be mindful of that um, and to, to strive after God, but to also be aware that like you don't have to struggle. You can if you feel called to it and God will bless you through it. But like your your ministry is not inherently better just because you're fighting for it. Um, so just like be aware, take care of yourself, take care of your ministry by taking care of yourself. Yes. Just man, just a lady with wise words. <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's so hard because everyone these days wants to be this like huge social justice warrior. Yeah. And so it's like, yes, we absolutely should be fighting for justice. Sometimes, like, you have to do that from outside the house, right? Mm -hmm. That line from Hamilton, you have to put a fire out inside the house. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. It's it's a hard balance to walk, and it's hard to know when it's your time to step down and to do something that's easier. Um, but, yeah, you have to, I think, stay close to God and help guide you through it. Yes. Because um, when I was in college, when I was at DBU, when I first got there, they, I had more people telling me, like, you can't preach, like, mm -hmm. no. And um, then by the time I graduated, my last semester at DBU, the president went up during chapel mm -hmm. and said, here at this university, we believe both men and women oh. have the right to yeah, preach that's amazing and ever since then i've seen more change within the baptist churches yeah. and my hope is that um it will keep on changing keep on Agreed. letting women letting people be in ministry be in a leadership role because mm. Boy, we need it. Yeah, we do. Yeah, we do. And it's not just because we need, it's not because women are like inherently better than men, which no real feminist actually believes that. That's just something yeah. like bros like to yell at women. Um, right. It's, we don't need women in ministry because they're better at it. Although a lot of times we are. Um, we need women in ministry because Christ's table is diverse. Right, the kingdom of God is diverse. We are a body made up of different parts. You can't say to the eye, "Oh, I don't need you." You can't say to the pinky, "Oh, I don't need you." Um, I'm paraphrasing First Corinthians here. And so the whole point is that we are different from one another. The eye and the ear and the leg function differently than one another. They look differently than one another, but because they're different, it allows us to be this one beautiful body that can do all kinds of things. Um, and so when we have ministry that is comprised of people who look different, who function differently, who work differently, yes, it's a little confusing and it's a little difficult and it makes things harder sometimes, but also it creates a more beautiful ministry that can do more beautiful things. And that's why we need women in ministry. That's why we need men in ministry. That's why we need people of color in ministry. That's why we need people with disabilities in ministry. It's why we need people um, from different ethnicities and nations in ministry. And it's why we need people of different political ideologies in mm -hmm. ministry because Christ's kingdom is diverse and yeah. it's supposed to be. It's designed to be that way because it's more beautiful that way. Man, just spitting out <laughs> fire. Yes. It's dangerous to give me this microphone. It makes <laughs> me feel like I have some a sense of authority, some power. You do. You do. Just <laughs> slaying life every day. <laughs> Within her MDiv. Oh my gosh, it'll be the death of me. I have an assignment. I had an assignment due last night and I turned it in 10 minutes late, 12 10 instead of 11 59. Uh, and I have another one due tomorrow. Start it. It's like, it makes me take this long. We'll get to it. Yeah. 
lastly, what is the advice you would give to the stuttering community? Because most stutterers are the quiet ones, are the ones that don't have friends, the ones that are afraid to speak. What is the advice that you would give them? I'm going to say this again. I am not someone who stutters. Um, and so if you're a stutterer, person with a stutter, and you're listening to this and you think, well, that was a really stupid take, that is totally valid. Um, <laughs> I'm speaking about this without any first-hand experience. But from what I know, from what I've gathered, and also from what I know of God, um, it's, it's that your voice is needed. Your thoughts, your mind, your life experience is worthy um, and important at Christ's table. Um, that you see God in a way that other people deserve to see. And so my advice is to get involved in whatever way you can, right? To get involved in your local ministry. If you're not called to full-time ministry, um, you're still called to be a part of the church and to Mm -hmm. share the way that you see God with other people, to share the image of God that you have within you with other people. Um, And so to get involved in a ministry, and um, if that ministry is not, patient with you, is not supportive of you, is not celebratory of you, find a different ministry, find a different church, because that is not the image of Christ. Um, Christ brought people to the table who looked, who functioned, who talked, who spoke differently, and celebrated that. So if you were not celebrated, um, leave and find a different place if you can. I recognize even being able to do that as a privilege more nuanced conversation. So that is my biggest advice. Um, and if someone is not kind to you, if someone is not patient with you, if someone cuts you off or mocks you, they're not your friend, right? Like <laughs> they don't have to be your friend. There are better friends out there. Um, I hope it's fair to say that I think I'm a good friend to Sam. Yes. And like, it is easy. It is natural. It is simple and effortless. For me to treat her with dignity and respect and so i can say as a person who does not stutter that for other people who do not stutter it should also be easy and natural and uh, thoughtless almost to treat you with respect and so you have a right to demand that you have a right to expect that and you have a right to cut people out of your life who do not treat you with kindness and the respect that you Man, so good. So good. Wow. Man, I good. The first the first time in my life I'm lost of words. Like I'm like, okay, that was ama- amazing. Amazing. I, it. Um, I think you're amazing. I think it's really great that you have this podcast. I'm really honored to be a part of it. It's a speak. Um on it and apparently speak for a very long time <laughs> when did we start this like an hour and a half ago i have lost track <laughs> but, but it really has been an honor so thank you you are welcome well as i always say if you ever meet a person that stutters be kind and don't be a jerk